There are many ways people listen to vision, including through a PC at work. When you fire up your computer at work, go to vision.org.au slash listen and click the Vision or V180 Listen Live buttons. You can also catch the latest Vision National News Bulletin and enjoy a growing range of on-demand podcasts from the same page all while you work. However, and wherever you listen to Vision, you can be sure that the announcers, programs and music will help you look to God daily. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Our special guest today tells a disturbing story. It's his story of being left by his father, locked in an apartment while his father ran off with his mistress and left his little boy to die. And then the first time that this little boy experienced violence, he liked it. He grew up to be a violent criminal, a member of a biker gang, a bouncer, and managed the largest brothel in London. While serving five years in prison, he had an encounter with Jesus Christ. And these days, he travels the world with a faith-based ministry visiting the toughest prisons on the planet across 22 countries. John Lawson is the author of a book called If a Wicked Man, which is expanding to a global release in February next year. John Lawson's book is aimed solely at reaching the lost with the gospel, and he shares his life story in the true crime genre in an attempt to reach the kind of readers who would ordinarily never pick up a Christian book. And there's a little bit of good news for John Lawson. He's just signed a movie deal to turn his story into a feature film to reach the lost with the gospel. Let's say a special welcome from the UK to John Lawson. Hello, John. Welcome to 2020. Hey, hi, Neil. Great to talk to you, and thanks for having me on your show. Well, John, uh, just let me acknowledge that, uh, you know, thanks for your humility and uh, your, you know, desperation to talk to an Australian audience because uh, in London right now it's one thirty in the morning, so I uh, trust yeah. you had a little bit of a sleep, but thanks so much for staying up late to talk to us. Oh, you're very welcome. Actually, I was fast asleep and, uh, and your, your call came and then I remembered, oh, that's got to be my friend in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, let's uh, let's keep those eyelids uh, open over this next hour because you have an amazing story to tell. And I wonder, uh, you know, taking you back to uh, some painful memories, let's make that our starting point because I mentioned in the introduction your father left you to die and you were rescued after four days. Uh, you were only semi-conscious when you were found. Uh, take us back to your earliest memories of being deserted by your father. Well, Neil, I think before I start, I should really um, reiterate that when I share my story... Um, I really struggle, you know. I, I struggle when I stand before an audience. Um, I've just come back, actually, if, three days ago from a month in South Africa. And it, it, never, um, it never goes away, that feeling. I'm nervous beforehand. Um, I stand before them, and I'm shaking a little sometimes, even after all these 11 years of doing it, because much of my story is, is horrible. I'm, I'm deeply ashamed. Um, of what I'm about to share. So I'm coming from that place. I'm coming from a place of 
my story in parts is really disgusting, really. It is. It's just horrible and stupid and ridiculous and filthy. And yet, I'll keep sharing it because we get to the great parts where I come to know Christ. But I think my earliest memories, really, is of freezing cold Scotland, where I was born in, in Glasgow, into a lot of poverty. And um, I remember an excitement building up as um, my mum talked about South Africa, this far-off, distant country that we were going to go and live in. And my dad was in the Merchant Navy, and he docked in Durban, South Africa, one day. And uh, that was the time when they were getting us pommies to uh, come out to Australia or Canada or South Africa. And my dad just thought it would be a great idea for a, a new life. So we set sail, and I have vague memories of being on this big ship that we set sail in. Um, and then my next memories are of warm sunshine and monkeys in the trees and um, blue skies. And it was life was so different, and it was exciting. I, I felt like I was on the set of a Tarzan movie um, growing up. Um, and then, really, my life changed when my little brother was born when I was six. And then it changed again uh, when I was 10 years old. Um, when I was 10, my mum received a phone call from the UK to say that, uh, you know, telling her that her father was dying of cancer. And they said to my mum, if, really, if you want to see your dad again, you, you need to come home quickly. He's going to die in the next few weeks. And so arrangements were made for my mum to travel back to the UK with my little brother because it was free for him to fly in those days under a certain age. And I stayed in South Africa with my dad, and my dad was in the Durban City Police. Um, oh, my dad was my hero, Neil, like a lot of young boys with their fathers. Uh, he was always in the newspapers making high-profile arrests. Um, I would go to the shooting range with him and help him make bullets, and uh, I just I loved him so much. And um, I really missed my mom. And uh, the plan was we would be reunited after the funeral. Uh, either my mum and brother would come back to South Africa to our life there, or my dad would sell up our apartment and quit his job in the police, and then we would both go back to live in Scotland. Well, that never really worked out that way, really, because my father uh, was having an affair with another woman at work, and he used this opportunity just really to get rid of us as a family. And... Um, I remember the, the long holidays approaching in South Africa, uh, our long summer holidays, because it's back to front to the UK, I guess a bit like Australia, our long summer holidays at school were at Christmas time. And in the UK, they're in um, July. But Christmas time was approaching, and it was the last day of school. I was super excited because, well, we broke up on a Thursday instead of Friday. And I got a ride home in the police car with my dad, which was just really exciting. And then I remember getting to the apartment, and I can remember being a little bit confused as my dad said to me, you know, you're a big boy now. You're 10 years old. And I know mum's away and your brother and you're missing them, but I want you to be really brave. He said, I have to go to work, and I'm going to lock you inside. And if it gets dark... Don't worry too much. Just put yourself to bed. You're a big boy. And with that, he locked me in and left. Well, I was really brave, Neil, for about two minutes. <laughs> uh, and then he was gone and I was missing mom. 
And uh, there was a cheese sandwich on the side and a glass of milk, um, which I ate. And then I waited for my dad to come home. He didn't come home that night. And I kind of cried myself to sleep, if I'm honest with you. Uh, I climbed into my parents' bed and, and waited for him. I woke up in the morning and I waited for my dad to come home and he didn't come back that morning either and now I was feeling hungry and there was no more food. So I waited all day and all day and all day and all day and he never came home and got to that night and again I, I fell asleep. I was really hungry and fell asleep through my hunger and the next day the same and the next day and Finally, on the fourth day, I was so weak and weary, I hadn't eaten any food at all for about three and a half days. I was lying on the floor in the living room, kind of semi-conscious, and that's about the last thing I remember. The next thing I remember is looking up at the front door um, as the frame began to crack as it was kicked in, and then I was lifted off the floor, and um, next thing I woke up in some people's houses, and I was in a bit of a state of confusion, really. Even though I knew the people, they were like aunties and uncles to me. Um, and uh, I discovered that my, my dad had run off and locked me inside there and, and, and wasn't coming back. So that's the earliest memory that I have. And those senses of abandonment that you get when you have that experience within your own family, they, as you say, it's hard to share because... That sense of abandonment never leaves you, and uh, no doubt uh, you get emotional about that even today? Um, I, I did for years. I don't really struggle with it anymore because I'm, I'm in Christ. And, but I, I think maybe for years I did. Um, I think it was just not having your father there when he should have been. And that sudden loss, I guess it was almost like a bit of a grief of maybe, maybe losing a parent because he, he was gone, even though I knew he was alive, but, you know, he didn't get in touch with us after that. And I think when you're a kid, it hits home more when it's your birthday or Christmas and, you know, you, you're waiting for the postman to bring you that card from your dad uh, or just trying to figure out, well, what happened, you know? Yeah. Was it me? Was, was I naughty? Did, all those things a kid will go through. Blaming yourself uh, in that sense. Yeah. Uh, now, you blame yourself, don't you? So, your um, dad had abandoned you. Uh, you were rescued. And I, I imagine you can look on that and say there is a silver lining to a very dark black cloud, and that is that you didn't die. You were semi-conscious when you uh, were rescued. Uh, but the, you found your way into the home of your grandparents, but it wasn't long before they died. And you and the rest of your family there were penniless and homeless and and then found yourself manoeuvred into a flat in the worst and most notorious housing estate in Scotland. Take us briefly through that part of your life, John. Well, that was a huge culture shock for me. I was, well, by now, I mean, in South Africa in those days, um, and even today, actually, when I go there, there's such respect for your elders. Um, and I was brought up quick strict to have manners and be polite and say yes please and no thank you and anybody that was older than you an older person we would always refer to as auntie or uncle in that little south african accent i had it would be hi uncle neil have it auntie marion and e even now when i go there kids will re refer to me as uncle john hi uncle john 
Um, so to come back to the UK, uh, initially my grandparents had moved to Birkenhead in Merseyside, right near Liverpool. And there was all these Scouser kids now using foul language that I wasn't used to and being disrespectful and being cheeky to teachers in school. So it was a bit of a culture shock to me and I felt like an, an alien or a foreigner in my, in my home country. And um, uh, yes, well, both, both my grandparents died really quickly and I can just remember this outpouring of grief and my mum and obviously her husband wasn't coming back and he didn't want us to come back to South Africa. So everything was gone. We had to come out of our grandparents' home because, well, they died and they were just renting. So there we are now. We find ourselves, the only place to live is back in Scotland on a, on a housing estate called Drumchapel which was on the outskirts of Glasgow, and this is where they would put all the troublemakers or the broken families or the drunks or the alcoholics or anyone that was just desperate. And we found ourselves on this place that I thought when we approached it in the car, in my uncle's car, that we were going to a prison camp. Um, I don't want to trivialize it or overestimate it, but to me it looked like Alcatraz. And I was wondering what, what we were doing there. Um, graffiti everywhere. Just It was just awful. And it was known as the worst housing estate in the whole of Europe. And that's the first place, really, I saw other kids my own age standing on street corners, openly sniffing bags of glue to get high, using other drugs. Uh, and in Scotland, we have, and still to this day, we have a big problem with, with knives. It's a knife culture. I guess it's no surprise, really, because we wear a knife in our socks when we get married in our kilts called a ski and do. But um, the knife culture was, was, was big, and I saw other, ca uh, other kids carrying blades and, and being prepared to use them. So I was really intimidated. I was just this polite little boy, and I spoke very differently to the other hard kids on the estate, so I attracted attention. And uh, as a little boy, you adjust, don't you, to the circumstances that you are uh, put into. And uh, I note that in your story, John, you say that in this environment you encountered violence for the first time and discovered yeah. that you actually liked it. And uh, that set you on a different trajectory to that uh, polite, kind little boy. Uh, tell us very quickly just how that's begun to develop and uh, your passions turned uh, towards violence. Well, first day at school, as happens with a lot of kids, the, um, what they refer to in, in Scotland as the cock of the school, the hardest boy, it was his job to then intimidate the new boy and, and, and get the pecking order right. So my first day at the school in, in this estate, I was thrust against the wall by the throat, and I was told in no uncertain terms that I was going to have my head kicked in after school. And this boy invited me to have a fight. And I was so polite that, well, I agreed, and we had this big fight after school. And this is where I discovered an ability to be able to take a punch. And I think, you know, there's two kinds of people in the fighting world when you watch boxing. Uh, one of them has a glass jaw. They get one hit on the chin and they fall over. And the other ones where you can beat them with a baseball bat and they won't fall down. And I fell into that category without knowing. This boy was punching the living daylights out of me on, on the school field. So many times he punched me in the head that he got exhausted. And when I landed a lucky punch, 
he fell over and I won the fight. And, well, the next day in school, everybody wanted to be my friend. And I, I quickly put two and two together. Like you say, you adapt. And I, I realized on that housing estate, it was your fists that earned respect. It was how hard you were. And also, Neil, I've got to say, on that estate, I was shocked. I began to hate the police, you see, because my father was a policeman, of course, and, and I was shocked at the brutality of some of the beatings that the women in our close, uh, our close is the, the, the building that you live in, the alleyway, in, in our close, that women would get beaten so badly by drunken husbands. Um, my mum would offer refuge, and these women would be in our flats with their noses broken and black eyes and bleeding and the police would come and say well who did this to you this is awful and these women would say what well, was my husband and the police in those days would say well nothing to do with us it's a domestic and at a young age at 13 or 14 i found myself having to fight these grown men that were trying often trying to kick their way into our flat and i really began to get the taste for blood I also really got into martial arts. I fell in love with Bruce Lee, like any young boy of those eras when Enter the Dragon came out. And, but I, I had a passion for martial arts, and I was good at it. And uh, really, I was only ever good at fighting and playing rugby. And uh, a few years later, well, we moved to Merseyside again, and the whole cycle started again. New boy at school, with a bit of a Scottish accent this time, and... Well, I think the only thing that stopped me being expelled from school, Neil, is the sports teachers were on my side because it was a rugby school and they wanted me in the first 15. Apart from that, I, I was a real idiot of a young man by now. I, I was carefree. I had a bad attitude. I was angry at the whole world. And I'm ashamed to tell you, at the age of 14, 15, I would break into factories, climb in through the roof, steal what we could because... I just wanted money, Neil. I, I wanted to be able to buy my mum things that we never had. My mum really struggled to hold our family together and pay the bills. And I was just this disillusioned young boy that was getting into trouble, fights at school. Well, we're, involved John, we'll, I'll just take a short break for a moment. We're hearing about the sort of circumstances that shape the life of a young man. Uh, John Lawson's story is recorded in his book called If a Wicked Man and we're coming to the best parts and we're going to uh, hear some more of this story just ahead. Uh, John Lawson is our guest on the line live from the UK in London. We're back with more in just a few moments. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective 2020 on Vision. John Lawson is our guest. He's author of the book called If a Wicked Man. And for those things that we're ashamed of, uh, those things we'd call the dirty parts of our story, they remain part of who we are and they do become a curiosity for people who hear the story of our past. John, things went from bad to worse. You had a taste for violence. Take us through the way that you grew into a young man and the ways that you uh, were uh, in a career path. Well, by the time I left school, Neil, I had no qualifications to speak of. I just wanted money. And I had this violent mentality, and I was good at fighting. Um, my uncles were now living in London, and they were working with the Maltese Mafia. Now, back in the day, the Maltese Mafia, they ran most of Soho, which is the red light district. And while I went down to London as a young man, I began to work with my uncles. They owned peep shows and what we called hostess bars and 
and various brothels and adult um, entertainment shops, shall we call it. And, well, I went down to work with them, and I earned a lot of money, much more than my mates were earning back home. And, um, well, I loved that lifestyle, which ended with my first visit to prison where an American tourist didn't want to pay his extortionate bill in one of these clubs and well I kung fu kicked him in the chest and forced him to pay and I was thrown into jail well good I deserved it and um, it did nothing for me I did nine months in prison and then I had to go back up north I began to work as a bouncer in many nightclubs and I worked with a team of men who were ex-special forces I was the only one who wasn't and we would be moved from nightclub to nightclub where the local bouncers had lost control. Um, the level of violence began to increase, really, in, in my life, and it had become very brutal by now. I was making many bad decisions. I joined the motorcycle gang, kind of like the Hells Angels. They were called the Nomads, and I was just looking for something new. I just wanted brotherhood or friendship, and I wasn't finding it. I, man, I, I got involved in such serious crime. I was even contemplating selling explosives to the IRA. I was such a loser such a scumbag of a man, really, and violence was my greatest friend. Um, I ended up going to jail a second time, working with my uncles, opening an adult DVD shop, just for a small nothing eight weeks. And it was here I made some connections that would take me into a higher level of crime. I got involved in, in very, very serious kidnap and extortion, working for gangsters who had issues with money. And when those kind of people have issues with money, they come to idiots like me, scum like me and my men, and we would be the ones to come and find you if you were stupid enough to have stolen money from them, and my life had got involved in such serious crime that even for fun, I mean, it's a ridiculous word to use, fun, but for fun and for a bit of pocket money, we would rob local drug dealers, hold them hostage, and John, money down the we're about to go to news, and... The best part is just ahead, and we'll continue our story after Vision National News. John Lawson is staying up late. In fact, it's around 2 a.m. in London. And, uh, John, if we're coming to your story, you really got to a point where the violence in your lifestyle led you to working for gangsters, and you became an enforcer for gangsters, uh, you became embroiled in kidnapping other gangsters to make them pay money they owed to his clients. One thing led to another. Eventually, uh, you were arrested for crimes that you were committing. Yeah. Um, at the same time this was happening, my mum, through uh, the verge of suicide, actually cried out to God and, and committed her life to Christ and become a Christian. And my brother and I thought she'd lost her mind and she got involved with happy clappies and what was all this gospel music, and uh, we thought she'd lost her mind. Um, she prayed for me every day, and the more she prayed, the worse it seemed that I got. Um, my goodness, Neil, I, I was now embroiled in this world of um, finding people that I met through a certain circle. I was working as a bodyguard with the Rolling Stones at the time, and I threw that career away because it was more lucrative to go after these gangsters, and yes, I, I did many brutal things. I, I have much blood on my hands, and I'm so glad we don't have time to talk about all those horrible things. But to cut that long story short, uh, the police now caught me. I'm thrown into jail for four years for extortion. And the, uh, about a month later, they caught the rest of the gang. They tried to make me give evidence against them by calling me as a compellable witness from prison. 
I was very rude to the judge and told him where he could put his evidence and the judge thanked me and gave me a, a year and a half extra. So there I was, serving five and a half years in prison. The government seized all of my assets under the Proceeds of Crime Act, and, and well, so they should. In prison, all I could think of was more crime. I was in a high-security jail in prison. I got divorced when I was in prison because I caused my wife and family so much trouble. I was a real loser. Um, but in prison, I thought, well, good. When I get out of prison, I will go back and rob all of these people. Uh, I had a list of clients who were going to get it, and I was going to keep the money and not get commission this time. But in that prison, I made friends with a Nigerian man. He was different from the other prisoners. Um, but there was one thing, though, I didn't like about him. He was a Christian, and he was always harping on about Jesus and God, a, a little bit too much for my liking. And every Thursday in that prison, there was a Bible study, a local pastor from a village called Dumblain, where there was a horrible massacre in a school a few years earlier. He took the time and effort to come into that prison and share the gospel with prisoners. Well, for four months, this Nigerian invited me, and for four months, I refused. Until one day, he shared with me that um, the pastor brings with him nice cake and coffee and biscuits. And, well, I said, well, why didn't you tell me that before, you idiot? And I put my name down, and I went along to this Bible study with the intention of stealing as much cake and coffee and biscuits as I could get my hands on. Well, I did know one thing about you Christians, and that is when you pray, you close your eyes. This was my opportunity to steal, and... Um, I was so disappointed, though, because this pastor moved us all to the other side of, the, of this room, and he got a guitar out and handed out some song sheets, and I was thinking, oh, no, here we go, hallelujahs and kumbayas, I can see it now. All I wanted was my cake and coffee. But I tell you, Neil, God did something in that moment, because I looked at these other hardened criminals, murderers, lifers, drug dealers, bank robbers, and there was this violent animal sitting there amongst them, and these men looked happy. It was weird. Why are you looking happy? You're in prison, for goodness sake. They began to raise up their hands, and they sang a song that I'll never, ever forget. It's my favorite song of all time, because in that moment, I broke, really. It was a song called Open the Eyes of My Heart, Lord. And, well, I'm looking at the lyrics, and I knew I was going to cry. I hid my face behind the song sheet, because I didn't want them to see me crying. Not, not in prison. And I cried like a baby, and I, I don't remember much more about that night. Mm. But the next morning, the guards unlocked my cell, and there's the Nigerian standing there. And he, he had this habit of saying, hello, my friend, how are you today? <laughs> and I would say, well, I'm in prison. Why do you keep asking me that question? And uh, he had a Bible behind his back, which he thrust into my hands. I didn't want it, but I took it, and I threw it onto my bed in disgust. Well, that night, when I was locked up in my cell on that Friday evening... I opened the Bible for the first time in my life, and it just kind of fell open in the book of Ezekiel. And, and this is where I take the title from my book, really. I read in Ezekiel 18, 27 to 32, But if a wicked man, well, that was me, of course, if a wicked man turns away from all of the wickedness that he has committed, and if he does what is just and right, then he can save his life, he won't have to die. And then there's a complaint from God's children, the house of Israel. Oh, the ways of the Lord are not just. And God says, no, is it not your ways that are unjust? Therefore, I will judge each one of you according to your ways, declares the sovereign Lord. So repent. Rid yourself of all of the offenses you have committed, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Now, 
I don't know what those words mean to your listeners, Neil, but in that cell, when I looked at myself in the mirror, I was disgusted with myself. I felt ashamed of my life. I saw all the horrible blood dripping from my hands. All I knew was I wanted this new heart and new spirit, but I didn't know how to get it. How do you get this new heart and this new spirit? I didn't know what to do, how to do it, but I went back to the Bible study the following week, and I asked this pastor, how is this possible? How is it possible that this God can give someone like me a new heart and a new spirit? And, Neil, that pastor shared the gospel with me in such a simple way. I could understand because he spoke in, in, in terms of prison language and legality. It was a great way to reach somebody like me. He said, well, John, you committed a crime. You stood before a judge in court. The judge found you guilty and you were sent to prison. We, we call that justice. I said, well, yeah, tell me about it. Here I am. He said, well, one day when you die, you're going to stand before God on Judgment Day. Will you be guilty or innocent, heaven or hell? And I said, well, you know, maybe this God can, you know, he's supposed to be all lovely, isn't he, and nice and merciful. And maybe he can see that I'm not such a bad guy really underneath. You know, it's not all my fault, all the things I've did. I've made some bad choices, but haven't we all? And he said, well, do you think you're good enough to get to heaven? I said, well, I've done some good things as well, you know. I did give money to charity. I did rescue lots of people out of a burning building once and won bravery awards even from the police. So maybe God can see the good things I've done and let me off. He said, well, John, that's called bribery. You can't bribe God with your good works. You can't bribe God in the same way you couldn't bribe that judge in court. And God has to make a decision through your choices in life. Heaven or hell, John? And I said, well, I'm still not sure. Maybe heaven. And he asked me three questions to determine, to help me determine whether I'd be guilty or innocent. He said, how many lies have you told in your life? I said, well, too many to count. He said, well, then that makes you a liar. Have you ever taken anything in life that wasn't yours regardless of value? I said, well, yeah, of course. Well, that would make you a thief. And he said, have you ever murdered anyone, John? I said, well, no, I was thinking about it, though, but no, I didn't. He said, well, Jesus redefined words like murder, because Jesus said if you've hated someone in your heart, then you've murdered them in your heart. So you see, John, that's only three of God's Ten Commandments. If God was going to judge you just on these three alone, don't you think you'd be in trouble? And I said, well, yes, in that case, yeah. So heaven or hell? I said, well, well by that, I'm going to hell. But he said, but you see, John, imagine when you were in court and the judge gave you a huge fine, let's say a million pounds. And you couldn't pay it. But a rich man stood up and he wrote a check for, you, for your fine and he paid your fine. The judge could let you go free because someone else paid your fine. In the same way, John, Jesus Christ came to this world and he lived a perfect life. And when he went to that cross, to die on the cross, to take the punishment you deserve, it's like he wrote a check for your life. Now, when you put a check in the bank, it takes about three days to clear. Well, guess what, John? After three days, the check cleared because God raised Jesus from the dead and he's alive today. And because he did that, are you aware of the legal implications in God's courtroom? I said, no. I was really curious now. I said, no. What, what legal implications? God could legally dismiss the case against you because Jesus Christ has paid your fine. And all you have to do to receive his grace and his mercy is be willing and want to turn away from the bad things. We call that repent. And say sorry to Jesus Christ. And the second thing you can do, surrender your life to him. 
Make Jesus your Lord and your Savior. And I promise you, if you do these two things and you're genuine, God will give you a new heart and a new spirit through his Son, Jesus Christ. And only in his perfection alone will you be able to stand before God one day and be seen as righteous. And, well, I'll tell you, I understood that very, very clearly. John, let's dwell for just a moment uh, on this word wicked because it's so meaningful to you and as you travel the world uh, visiting some of the toughest prisons on the planet, uh, 22 countries, uh, your primary audience when you're behind bars in prison are those inmates that are there and uh, for them it's easy to see that there is wickedness in their own life if they've been convicted of a crime. As you say, it's a little bit easier for prisoners who've been convicted to understand just how serious sin is before God. Mm. What about people who haven't been to prison, almost in their lives, grown up and been shaped to think that in the goodness of their own hearts they'll be acceptable by God or acceptable to God when they would stand before him in any sense of judgment? How do you communicate to people who've not been prisoners and yet this word wicked applies not just to people who've done dramatically bad crimes, but really to all of us who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I think it's in, in the clarity of sharing the gospel. Um, and I, I like to use the law, because I think the law in the Bible is described as a school teacher that convicts us of our sin. Unless we know we're sinners, well, why on earth would we need a saviour? And so by, by using the law to expose our sin, that puts us all in the same category. And it matters not whether I'm in sharing in a prison today or whether I'm sharing in a church or a youth group or a community event. When I ask the audience, uh, I say, well, I've told lies in my life. That makes me a liar. Do you agree? Well, of course, they'll all come back with yes. And then I'll say to them, well, look, let me ask you, you may not have been a violent criminal like me, but have you ever told a lie in your life? Would you raise your hand and show me? And while all the hands go up, maybe one or two don't, and I say, well, that's great. Thank you for your honesty. I noticed that there was a few of you who didn't raise your hand. Well, that's the second lie you've told, and, well, that usually gets a laugh. Um, and then I say, well, have you ever taken anything in life? Because I've taken things that would make me a thief, regardless of value. I mean, have you ever copied a DVD without permission? You know, that's called copyright theft. And, of course, they kind of laugh again in in the awareness that, well, they're all liars and thieves as well. And I then will say to them, well, you might say you're not as bad as a murderer. But you said if you've hated someone in your heart, you've murdered them in your heart. Uh, Well, look, let's stop there, because that's only three of God's Ten Commandments, and let's not go into the other seven, otherwise I think we'd all be embarrassed. Now we have an awareness that, well, we're all the same, aren't we? Prison officer, prisoners, guards, or church member, we're all the same in God's eyes. The Bible says that no one is righteous, there's not one. And so that sets the bar of letting people understand, well, I'm a sinner. And, of course, this whole concept of trying to bribe the judge or bribe God with your good works isn't going to get you anywhere. Um, but But Jesus said that there are two things you can do. Number one, repent and surrender. Every time I read the Bible, it's a specific order that I see, which is repent and believe, or repent and have faith, or repent and trust. And and repentance is a requisite to receive his mercy. I don't understand how we might stand before God completely unrepentant. 
and not willing to, to, to surrender our lives to him, well, of course, then we can't. So there's a requirement, isn't there, of, of our hearts just being willing and want to turn to him, even if we don't know how to. And, of course, the Holy Spirit drawing us to, to God. And in that moment, when there's a genuine, real embracement of his gospel message and our awful filthiness, really, that's the only word I can describe my life, but for those that might not consider themselves that filthy, just be aware that you're going to stand before a, a holy and righteous God. And we can't do that unless we stand in his presence in Christ and in Christ's righteousness. The powerful words could, to reflect there, on those, John. Uh, we're running short of time. Uh, you're coming to Australia. You have a friend in Adelaide, and while you've done a lot of travelling and uh, ministering in prisons around the world, telling your story and leading prisoners to Christ, uh, you are coming to Australia in October, and uh, you're coming to Adelaide. Is Adelaide the only city that you'll be visiting? Yes, and it came about, um, I was just sitting here talking to a friend of mine about keeping October free. I didn't know why. I felt that through the Holy Spirit, we must keep October free. While I'm having that conversation, my friend, who I haven't spoken to in a couple of years, is trying to call me, and he says, John, I think you should come to Adelaide, where I live. Um, I said, when? He said, October. Well, I nearly fell off my chair. I called my friend back, and immediately we made a decision that we, we have to respond to this call from God. Quite unusually, uh, I did it the opposite way around. Normally, I would engage with a church or a group, for a long time and we would sort an itinerary and speak engagements and then we book flights well on this occasion i felt the call so strongly we just went ahead we miraculously found the money and we booked the flights to adelaide without a single speaking engagement we felt that we must come and so we are arriving on the 2nd of october to adelaide only i think in surrounding areas um this time um and we're beginning to build an itinerary now of speaking engagements in schools and rehab centers, a couple of prisons, a few churches. Um, I only focus on two areas of ministry, Neil. One is reaching the lost with the gospel, and the second is encouraging, training, and equipping Christians to share their faith through a series of evangelism training conferences. And um, by God's grace, I teach in Bible colleges and seminaries and also in churches. And so I'm actually I'm looking for some more speaking engagements. If there are any churches or friends or networking opportunities in Adelaide and if they're interested in having me speak well please get in touch I'd love to come well uh, there'll be listeners in Adelaide who might like to uh, open a door or two for you having heard your story uh, let's quickly have a, a focus on your book If a Wicked Man uh, global release February next year and of course the news that's just broken is that you've signed a movie deal to turn your story into a feature film uh, what are your expectations uh, what do you know about the, the possibilities of what's uh, what's ahead with the, the whole idea of a film well it was, wasn't something I was pursuing, but uh, have you guys heard of a film called Faith Like Potatoes? Yes, that's right. Yes, I have. The, the story of Angus Buckin. Well, I, I met the producer of that film while I was in South Africa this last month on mission, and he came to hear me speaking at the event. We met a few days later. He said to me, I'm not looking for any more films. I don't know what your expectations are. I've got a few other films in the pipeline, and, but maybe I can help you and point you in the right direction. And I said, well, I don't have any expectations. If we have a movie... Great. If we don't, I don't care. Honestly, I'm not interested. I'm busy with the gospel. If a movie comes, it will be God's will, and we can reach more people with the gospel. That's all my expectations are. Um, this is not anything I'm pursuing. 
Well, by the end of the conversation, he said, John, I think we need to make your movie. And within a few days, the, the initial finance came in and through a, a donor, and gosh, we exchanged contracts in three days. And just uh, yesterday morning, I picked him up. He flew in from South Africa to the UK, and we spent all day uh, discussing the film. And um, we're going to start production, really, um, in next year, in 2019, and it will be set for a global release. I think they're aiming to go through Sony Pictures or something, and it just seems like a whirlwind. Um, oh, so many doors have opened. Uh, God is making a way for this to happen. And again, I don't want to just make a bland Christian movie. You know, sometimes Christian movies only get passed around in Christian circles. That doesn't interest me at all. And that was the aim with the book. In the UK, there are no Christian testimony books in the main... Uh, secular bookstores, only in a Christian bookshop. Well, what kind of non-Christian, like I was, is ever going to go into a Christian bookshop? And so I targeted my book into the true crime genre, so it's a true crime biography, but the integrity of the gospel remains intact. And it's a little bit hardcore because of the roughness of my story, but we're trying to reach people that won't ever read a Christian book. And um, we've kind of gone undercover with the gospel, and that's what I want to do with the movie. I want to make a film of the quality that people, regular normal people, might go to the cinema or watch it on one of these video platforms and be intrigued by this horrible, ridiculous, filthy story. But then, boom, they get to the part in prison where I give my life to Christ. And the last thing we leave that watcher or the reader is the gospel message. Um, so that's the intention behind that. Well, let me point people to the website. If a wicked man.com uh, John is that the place that people can make a connection with you and uh, as you men mentioned uh, you know there's some possibilities there you're looking for more engagements when you visit Adelaide in October is that the point where people can uh, make direct contact with you through the website yes absolutely my email address is on there and contact details if a wicked man.com and there's a little uh, it'll mostly talk about the book and there's little clips of a documentary and uh, but there is a tab called Ministry, and they can click on that, and I'll tell them more about the ministry. I'm involved with a ministry called the Great Commission Society. And again, their only focus is to reach the lost of the gospel and train and equip Christians to do the same. Um, so all my contact details are there. I'd love to hear from people. I, I'm definitely looking to fill some more gaps um, because of the nature of responding to this call to come to Adelaide. And I know they call it the City of Churches, but... I'll tell you, they reckon about 98% of Christians in the West, including Australia, are not sharing the gospel on a regular basis. Um, even in a city of churches, so many are not actually going out and finding people intentionally sharing the gospel. And Well, that really bothers me, and I want to do something about that. I would love to come alongside any churches uh, and help them with their evangelistic efforts if I'm able to do so. Um, I'm coming at evangelism from a different angle, Neil. Um, most evangelism training is focusing on how to do it. I'm rather focusing on the why we should be doing it. And if I can impart or equip and encourage Christians in this area of understanding why we should be engaged in the Great Commission and then give them some of the how-to, well, there's much more longevity in them actually doing it. So I'm looking for those two opportunities. One, to speak at events, to share the gospel, and secondly, to organize some training conferences to train and equip your Christians and your church to share their faith. 
Well, John Lawson, uh, just great to hear your story today. It's a moving story. It's a powerful story. And it is a story that inspires those who have heard it today uh, to the seriousness by which we take this challenge for the Great Commission to evangelize the world because there are not only uh, lives that need to be saved but souls that need to be won uh, for Christ. And uh, let me point people to that website ifawickedman.com and John Lawson, our guest, uh, we've been talking about his book, If a Wicked Man, uh, exciting news about the movie, ifawickedman.com. John, thank you so much for taking some time to share your heart with us today on 2020. You're very, very welcome. And, and that book will be available, actually, in February in Australia. So look forward to seeing it out there. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.